Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother, Michael, to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll be getting deep into the chapters we're discussing today and those that came before. The only spoilers beyond the chapters we're discussing today, though, will come from Michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV show, which he watched a decade ago. Today, we're going to be discussing Bran 4, Ned 5, and John 4 of A Game of Thrones. Hey, Michael. <laughs> I'm going to really work on that intro. We're going to do it. It's going to be great. <laughs> I'm going to be honest. It, it kind of sounded like you were just going do, 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 do. For that's those crazy. listening at home, that that's a kazoo. <laughs> Incredible. I don't remember how the rest of it goes. Um, you know, while we're on the topic of annoying sounds, I, oh, I have good. to apologize to the listeners. Uh, we uh, We recorded together at my apartment last week. We tried to make sure everything was quiet. I left a window open, which I hadn't realized, <laughs> and there's a very loud siren somewhere around the 15 to 20 minute mark. So my bad. Yeah, uh, but if you can uh, mistake again, if a listener can comment, what type of siren was it? A police siren, an ambulance siren, or a fire truck siren? You'll win some of Daniel's clothing. I mean, without revealing too much about myself, I uh, live somewhere that, according to a lot of the media, has no police anymore. So I, I don't think it was that, but. You keep your gross politics to yourself, Dan. <laughs> All right. Where did we so, leave yeah. off? Where where have we been? You know, just recently, we were out in the Golden Sea of Dothraki Sea, or whatever it was yeah, called. That's true. Annie, a beautiful young maiden, timid and afraid, I, has learned the ways, the ways of womanhood. And it she took a, a king novel. and brought him to his knees. Okay, now that we're done having sex, let's talk about a child. Uh, oh, nice segue. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so so to, to give us some background on where the characters we're about to discuss just were, uh, we've got Bran, Ned, and John coming up. Bran, the last time we saw him, just woke up. Ned, of course, is down in King's Landing, starting on his uh, mystery investigation, being a private eye. And John is still up at the wall, uh, trying to settle in there and maybe find some friends. And that's where we left him. Well, it'll be exciting to find out what happens to all three of those characters right now. Uh, but I figured we like started the beginning the... of a game show. <laughs> yeah, welcome to the game show. Let's start with Bran Four. Take us away. Okay. okay. Well, I I'll say even even from the start. And even, I guess, even a half a step backwards, right? Even for these three chapters that we're looking at right now, it feels to me that the most recent chapters that we just read, these were these were heavy hitters. The fact was there was a lot that was going on. We yeah. really got a lot of sort of growth from our characters, growth in the story, which was really awesome. These three chapters, I'll just say it kind of like as a bundle. I thought these were more sort of like situation building a little bit more. I got to sit mm -hmm. with the characters a little bit, not a huge leap in any direction from what I saw. And what I experienced, but was really fun. I'm starting to have a lot of fun getting to, to spend time with these characters. I want to yeah. know what they're thinking. And they're and they're giving me the thoughts they're thinking that I want to hear. Thinking uh, about which, thoughts with thought thinkers. Yeah. Uh, and I'm putting on my yeah. thinking cap. Ryan uh, in particular, I, I like because, like I just said, this is the first time we're seeing him since he's woken up. And this chapter is really all about him dealing with his condition. You yeah. Know, he... We're seeing him grapple in real time, a young child grapple in real time with paralysis, uh, with a disability that he's not used to, and what that means in his life and what's changing, and he's really struggling with it. Something I'll add, even from a more meta aspect here, is that it's interesting to me. You just said it in the introduction, and you just said it again now, You know, but this is the first time that we're coming back to Bran since he woke up, but... There have been many other characters that have experienced his waking. So we've been yes. with John and Tyrion when they found out that he woke up. We've been with uh what's his name? Ned when he found out that uh, you know, that that Bran was waking up and things well, like that's, that. Well, that's coming shortly, but yes. Is it coming shortly? Yeah, that's in the next chapter. Well, we hear about I it didn't in retrospect. Uh, but with all that said, it feels to me that Bran's been awake for a while, but here we are and he's yeah. now, now I get to be in his head. And just like you said, it really does start with him just kind of sitting and sweating it out. The fact is, is he's kind of, and understandably so, he's kind of pissed at a situation. He wants to be running around the yard with Rickon. He was supposed to yeah. go to King's Landing. He was supposed to be with his father. He woke up to find that his dad is gone. His mother's gone. Jon Snow is gone. 
you know, all, all these people who were both supposed the sisters, to, yeah, both the sisters are gone, people and the whole were, household. He remarks, which you know, yeah. I, I just wanted to note because we've been talking about it with Arya and with Ned this interest in the little people uh, and willingness to engage with them. But even those, he doesn't have as familiar faces anymore. And in fact, worst of all, he's really just stuck sitting with old Nan. Uh, And he's, he's, he's tired of it. He's super upset with his situation. Uh, And we do, we do get to like a good amount of like kind of colorful background about old Nan. Uh, Namely, she's old. (laughs) It's in the Uh, name. It is. Uh, but we learned that she she really was this sort of, uh, I don't even know what her title would be, right? But like wet nurse slash, yeah. slash housewoman type person. Uh, but for kind of a few generations already, she was there yeah. for Ned Stark. We don't Stark. even know how many. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, and in fact, I did want to ask you, and I know we were talking about this before the show started, but I have lost total track of all the Brandons, including yeah. Brand. Because they get mentioned a lot. Old Nan seemed to have babysat for some of them i think but i got really confused who are the brandons what what is their lineage okay so first i know you've been struggling with this but one of our main characters is named bran uh so that's one of them that's the kid right yes okay in in addition to that we have uh bran's uncle so this is ned's older brother and catelyn's first betrothal uh, who was supposed to be the Lord and he died in Robert's rebellion, uh, or rather as one of the impetuses for Robert's rebellion. Uh, we get, learn about two others here. One is Brandon, the builder who we'll get to in a moment when we discuss Nan's stories. Mm -hmm. The last one is a, a Brandon who is either a brother of Lord Rickard, which was Ned's dad. So that would be a great uncle of Brand's, or potentially a brother to Lord Rickard's dad, so a great, great uncle to Bran. So this is really just giving us color on how old old Nan is, that it potentially goes back even three generations that she was taken care of. Um, but we do learn that this Brandon, uh, who we don't otherwise know, died as a baby. He died at three years old, uh, caught a summer chill, and uh, passed away young. And we find out from that, too, that old Nan really has lost as old as she is. She really doesn't have much blood of hers around uh, in terms of family. The one person who's still around is actually a stable boy that we met some chapters ago named Hodor. Yes. uh, And he's actually not named Hodor. No, he's named like Newton or something. (laughs) He's named Walder. Walder, some other. It's like it's Walder with a D. Yeah, Uh, but he's named Walder. It's just he is a simpleton. Uh, as they call him, he's simple. And the only word he says is Hodor. So people started calling him that. Yeah. Nobody seems to know why he says that, but so be it. He says it. He also seems nice. He's like a friendly giant. He's like seven feet tall and enormous, but just seems to be just happy to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we also find, and I'm just, oh, you know, I was actually, you, you know, what's funny is, uh, there, there's a line that that Bran thinks that that remind me of something else that we've heard before from his sister. Uh, just right after we hear sort of more of Nan's story and hear about these Brandons in her life, uh, Bran, our current Bran, is actually sort of, I mean, he's really mopey and understandably. Yes. But he's pretty mopey. And he says, you know, he wanted to ride his pony again with his brothers and he wanted it to be the way it had been before. And it mm-hmm. reminded me of Sansa's line, you're spoiling yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, in that you have, and and I think that this line here and how it echoes Sansa's comment from earlier helps me actually put Sansa in a bit of a better light than I had her. They're kids. Yeah. Of course they want things to be a certain way. Of course they have expectations and they're young enough to, that they're young enough that they shouldn't have to, have to deal with these as dashed dreams yet. And he really has, and Sansa has as well to a certain extent, you know, had to experience that. But he wanted it to go back to her. Makes you wonder how much more Sansa has to face in the future uh, for that that comparison there. Um, but I love that. That's a really great way to look at it. And then, I mean, really, Bran, as the story, as the chapter goes on, uh, he he really is just really bemoaning his situation. Everybody's gone. I also say that uh, he he repeatedly he remarks that uh, the crow said that he would fly and the crow is basically full of shit. He mm-hmm. can't fly. He can't do anything. Right. Uh, and so... How interesting that the most recent Brand chapter was one that was incredibly magical, only for Brand to be spat back out into the very cold light of day, yeah, uh, which is Winterfell as a cripple. You know, uh, I think that that's interesting 
that's a great way to put it. You know, he's dealing with the hard truths of it, but it also contextualizes a little bit the opening of this chapter, which is we dive into old Nan telling a bunch of stories that Bran doesn't really want to hear, but that is kind of our connection back to the magical world. Mm. Uh, you know, we have this, this magical story that Bran was experiencing through his dream sequence, and now he wakes up and the world isn't that magical, except if you were willing to stop moping for a minute and listen in these stories that old Nan is telling. I know that... They even start off, yeah, sorry, they even start off exactly that way. The first story she references, I know a story about a crow. Crows are all liars. So, you know, she's kind Mm. of agreeing with them here, but but who knows? Maybe this is a story about the crow that he met. Uh, Who's to say? I also, I I like also that, that old Nan really does make this comment about stories, and I don't have it in front of me, but something along the lines, he says, you know, I'm tired of your stories. She says, they're not my stories. These stories yeah. came long before me and will live long after me. And I think there, it's it's a beautiful, I, I don't know if it's it's an inside kind of like author to, to reader type of comment or even just a beautiful moment from a really nice character. Stories are stories. These are not, you know, made up little myths by one person just to tell one other person. These are these are mm-hmm. waves that get written and and uh, it, how, how nice that is. Yeah. So on that note, let's let's jump into the story. She stories she's telling here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just first want to mention, we just talked about him. She brings up Brandon the Builder and says that he's Brand's favorite. And we learned that this is a, a character from thousands upon thousands of years ago who built Winterfell and some say the wall itself. So this is our first reference to him. This is our first reference to the wall being built even. Uh, and so I just wanted to call that out there in particular. Um, but we also get this moment where, you know, Brand thinks that's never been my favorite story. You're confusing me with a different Brandon. They all seem to mix together in your head, uh, which is an, an interesting note, something to put away for later, I guess. Um, well, maybe he is the old Brandon. Yeah, come again. Or so Brand says uh, his favorites are the scary stories, and we get the most information we've gotten about the others Mm -hmm. uh, before in one place. So I'm just going to run through this and I want to get your thoughts on it and and hear what your takeaways were. Nan starts off by saying, Oh, my sweet summer child, what do you know of fear? Fear is for the winter when the snows fall a hundred feet deep and the ice wind comes howling out of the North. Fear is for the long night when the sun hides its face for years at a time and little children are born and live and die all in darkness while the dire wolves grow gaunt and hungry and the white walkers move through the woods. The story she tells took place thousands of years ago. She says there was a night that lasted a generation. Women smothered their children rather than see them starve and cried and felt their tears freeze on their cheeks. And then the others came. They were cold and dead and hated iron and fire and the touch of the sun and every creature with hot blood in its veins. They conquered and killed tons of people riding pale horses and leading hosts of the dead. Uh, and this was all during the time of the first men who had taken the lands from the children of the forest and the children were still deep in the woods and the faces in the trees kept watch. And the last hero went to find the children of the forest, hoping that their magic would help. He searched for years without finding them and all his companions died and the others came down on him and bang, and they get interrupted. And that's the end of the story there. So Michael, what were your thoughts on this? Well, I liked it. I like stories. <laughs> uh, I'll add that that it reminded me of a comment that you and I discussed on our last episode, which was, you know, why aren't why isn't there more conversation about what the point of the wall is? You mm-hmm. know, it, here it is. It's the northern border. I get that. But there's all this allusion towards, you know, a dark winter coming and all of this. But, you know, nobody besides the Night's Watch seems to care. And here you have what I think I was looking for. I wish it was a little more present and a little bit more of the, the politicians of this story, if you will. But it's mm-hmm. fun to get to hear this. Um but I'll say that that I really found that old Nan's story here of the others. I was happy to hear it. I was excited to to get into more specifics here. But I didn't I didn't find there to be much news about it, like much anything new about it. It, okay. it was more detail. It was giving more context. But it really felt a lot like the prologue to me. I know yeah. there's a threat. I know winter is coming. Cool. Yeah. Here's so more some of the details, details about the threat. Yeah. Some of the details we've definitely seen firsthand back in the prologue. So, you know, in particular, pale dead horses, uh, leading hosts of the slain, we saw Waymar Royce come back to life. And of course, the the dead wildlings moved at the start of that conversation. Uh, And so we saw that happen. So it seems like there are some kernels of truth here. Um, I think 
the crucial things that we're really getting for the first time here, I, I have three of them that I want to focus on and chat with you. The first is this concept of the long night. We've gotten references to it. So uh, Lord Commander Mormont actually talked about it in our in the chapter we read for our episode last week. This is an interesting concept to go alongside something that uh, that has some elements of truth to it. Do you say that Royce came back to life? Yeah, the the end of the prologue, uh, he's the one that kills Will. Will looks up and Waymar Royce, dead Waymar Royce is standing over him and has bright I mean, blue I eyes. I must not have been paying attention. To I'm going to pull thought, up the text here. I thought it was the king of the the king of the the others that was there murdering like a uh, little will at the end no there there uh there was another that fought with oh, Royce. they had a yeah. duel uh but here let, let's just read it real quick uh will fell out of the tree that he was hiding in uh, he had to hurry will rose sir waymar royce stood over him his fine clothes were a tatter his face a ruin a shard from his sword transfixed the blind white pupil of his left eye the right eye was open. The pupil burned blue. It saw. The broken sword fell from nerveless fingers. Will closed his eyes to pray. Long, elegant hands brushed his cheek, then tightened around his throat. They were gloved in the finest moleskin and sticky with blood, yet the touch was icy cold. Damn, I should have paid more attention. What else have I missed in this book? Well, I'm trying to point it all out to you, but sometimes you don't listen. I didn't even know the guy had no ears at the beginning. I mean, yeah, work harder. Anyway, <laughs> you're right. But this is more content coming back, you know, old yes. man telling the story to Bran. I will also say, by the way, like less about the story itself, but I did really like this again, childish, childish in the best of ways moment that Bran gets to express where he's like, I don't want to hear your stories. I'm tired of stories. I don't want stories. And she's like, you want a scary story? He's like, yeah, I do. I do want to scare. And he loves and he it. Loves it. Yeah, he loves he gets, it. He gets freaked out. Um, but yeah, so I want to talk about the long night. We got we've gotten a reference to it before, and there are kernels of what we know to be true in this story, and the idea of a night that lasted a generation. I mean, that really conjures up uh, the uh, eternal night of the far north in our real world. You know, the the seasons where the sun doesn't rise or only rises for br very brief times. Um, but there are phenomenon that can cause that. You know, you have historical records of giant volcanoes that caused darkness, extended periods of darkness. You can think of nuclear holocaust. There are plenty of things that, that could conjure to mind. Uh, so I don't know if you have any, any reaction to that, but I just wanted to point it out. I think that the, you know, it, it plays well with what I've heard people saying in the book already. You know, it's been a long summer so far. It's, you know right. what I mean? Like winter is coming. Like people forget how proverbially cold the winter was the last time it was here and don't even remember it. And I think that we've already touched on some of that from, you know, the, the night's watch point of view versus the, the sort of perspective that maybe on King's landing, you get to be comfortable there to not worry about us by virtue of us taking care of our stuff. Right. But if you don't take care of us, we can't take care of our stuff. So again, I'm, I'm having a, even with the knowledge of the prologue, the level of threat that exists outside the wall now, the of what the others might bring, or even this long winter, this long night, mm -hmm. is still hard for me to, to grasp. I, I, I really don't know. It, I don't understand, and I don't think it's necessarily been shared yet, yeah. but the weight of this threat. Right now, I'm much more concerned with Daenerys and her uprising that is potentially seeing me to come together and concerned about Ned and, and King Robert down in King's Landing. What's happening there with the Lannisters, with all the sort of backstabbery that's been ha potentially happening, but much more that's present in my mind than, than this concern beyond the wall. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. So the two other things, they're more just brief mentions. I just want to highlight them from this story and keep them in mind. We've heard references to the children of the forest before in a similar vein of mythology of legend. And we get some more deeper information about them here. They have magic. They were forced out by the first men and kind of lived deep in the woods. But we also get this reference that the faces in the trees kept watch, uh, which seems pretty obviously a reference to the Weirwoods. Um, and, and so, you know, after Bran's last chapter where the Weirwood uh, looks up and sees him, it's the only thing other than the crow that interacts with him there. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to kind of give that a call out in this connection with this these magical beings that we have going on. I like that. And then the last one, uh, we got our first reference. This is the 
the only time we've heard so far of a last hero of a messiah type figure and we don't even hear how his story ends do you have any <laughs> thoughts on that no yeah i mean he must have saved the day for us to exist now but but we don't know know how or anything about him but just something to keep in mind i'm always interested in books like this i it, it's i feel like they go one of two directions usually one is that these stories are told in snippets just like this throughout this as sort of colorful context to help us understand the more in-your-face type of things that are about to happen. Right. So, oh, here's this, and then all of a sudden a chapter from now or 10 chapters from now. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, who, who's your messiah figure then? Who's your last hero? Have we met them so far? It's Tyrion. Okay. I'm just kidding. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, no, I just, honestly, like, like the only... It's weird to say it, but the only person who's standing up like that right now, and more so in the chapter we're about to talk about, mm -hmm. John comes to mind. He is showing yep. real nobility. The only other one that would really strike me right now, and I think it's a stretch, is Arya because of, okay. again, the sort of clear sightedness that she has about some situations and the maturation she's going through. Kind really of hero's quickly. journey she seems to be embarking yeah, on. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. But I will say the second type of story uh, where it's not just snippets of stories like this to give colorful context to a larger, you know, the issue at when it comes is that the stories are essential to the hero accomplishing what they need. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm curious to see if this this book, if this series goes that direction, old Nan is actually and whether it's old Nan or it's some other wacky person we haven't met yet. Right. But like the keepers of the books of some kind who have mm -hmm. this information become an essential gatekeeper to the hero and their need to understand the threat and the mythology. Well, maybe of there's it. a maybe there's a story out there about how to defeat the the uh the others maybe the children of the forest help with that but who knows the conclusion exactly. of the story might be the key to saving the world and unfortunately we don't hear it because with a bang the door is thrown open and hodor comes in and he says hodor that he does but we come to find out there are visitors here at winterfell now it's more than just visitors it's actually Tyrion. it's Tyrion coming yeah. down from uh the north so he's to be clear hodor doesn't say that maester lewin is with him he's the one who provides this information hodor just says hodor hodor um i will say too we didn't touch on it but brand did make a, a couple comments about his brother rob and that it's uh what, what it is you refer to him now it's uh it's no longer rob his brother but it's uh, Rob the Lord now. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not only a call back to the, the father's face versus the Lord's face that he mm, had. In yeah, exactly. I like that. And it, I didn't even think about that, but I think that it just, it's what it's, it's bad enough to feel abandoned by your family when you wake up and they're not there and they don't seem to care about your misery. All of a sudden mm -hmm. the person that is there, isn't even really there for you either. And uh, that must suck. Yeah. Uh, with that said, we have brand taken by Hodor down to the the sort of the 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 throne room I suppose you know the the sort of yeah. entry room where Tyrion is there and Rob's sitting there and we find a bit of a distraught situation yeah. uh very basically Rob has welcomed his guests with sword out yes. uh is basically saying with i mean and I'll, I'll be more direct about it but he was pretty direct he was basically saying Tyrion, there's no room for you here we're not mm -hmm. going to host you no regardless of your relationship to the the king to the throne to anything um i think that we the readers understand this as you know understand that rob has that insider information that this there was this attempt on brand's life and we think it came from a lannister i don't think yeah. rob knows yet that it's Tyrion's dagger I don't think he's party to that yeah knowledge. I mean we don't have any way that he could have found out unless yeah. Catelyn sent a letter which seems uh like that would be a, a bad idea but speaking of, of bad ideas uh from that perspective it's interesting how met how far Catelyn went to try and keep her actions secret to avoid from tipping off the Lannisters and then Rob just torches all of that I mean just straight up threats clearly yeah. hostile and you have to think i mean you said when we've talked about it before that you think Tyrion was responsible or at least involved in some way but you really did say responsible and if that's the case Tyrion has to wonder if they're on to him now i'll add to that my, my mind definitely went in kind of two simultaneous directions at the same time with rob one is this is the actions of a child uh mm -hmm. you know we we know that Tyrion he's young. says that 
Yeah, and 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 I think it's it's it it shows. I also wonder if this is the actions of a Stark, the hyper nobility, you, you know, the noble cause, just cause, only the righteous will stay under my roof. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, that, that plays uh, a definite role with what I was just saying about the secrecy, yeah. because Ned is not a, a subtle guy. He is not a secrecy guy. And so Rob is kind of operating on the same wavelength there. We also have during this conversation that Tyrion is staying true to his word with Jon Snow. Uh, mm-hmm. He's passing the the information that he asked. And in addition, he came up with something really great to say to Bran which is, hey, man, I invented a saddle for you so that you can be mobile, which is pretty awesome, like pretty generous, I think. I think it kind of shocks everybody. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And well, I want to pick up on that because, as I just said, you predicted before that Tyrion was behind the attempt on Bran's life. This is a really kind gesture. Are you revisiting anything here, rethinking? Uh, Clearly, I'm hinting that maybe you should. I mean... This is a strange move to take with somebody whose death you just tried to cause. You know, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm still at. It's not lost on me that you're bringing this up, and by virtue of you bringing it up, I assume that there must be, you know, some intention. But, but I, but I will add, like, Tyrion is quickly, if not has already quickly become one of, if not my favorite characters so far of all of mm-hmm. them. Incredibly witty, incredibly smart, quick on his thought feet. Uh, and and a pleasure to watch in action. But with all of this, and I say this as, as greatest compliments to his character, I think he understands that there's a real line between his own humanity and the game of politics that he gets to play. And right. and it 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 just still wouldn't shock me if maybe he is the mastermind. I don't think he told Jamie and uh and what's her face? Uh, Cersei. Cersei. <laughs> that one. Uh, Jamie and Cersei. To sh- obviously, he didn't tell them to shove Bran out the window. Right. Obviously, their no, affair is somewhat secret to him, whether he knows it or not. But he seems to be hyper intelligent when it comes to this game of politics. He seems to understand his role and what he can do and how he can benefit and benefit others and the leverage that comes with that. It wouldn't surprise me if he authentically wants to be kind to Jon Snow and to Bran and to whatever, but at the same time understands that in the game of politics, he may need to order the annihilation of Winterfell completely. Okay. Uh, So I'm still... That's a a good take. Yeah. He also does kind of say straight out what you were just talking about from the humanities standpoint. I have a tender spot in my heart for cripples and bastards and broken things. You know, he kind of lumps them all together. And it's interesting to see brand's struggle with that designation you know he says i'm not a cripple to which Tyrion again quips which i I think is great but then i am not a dwarf my father will rejoice to hear it and there's another moment in here that i i really love and just wanted to highlight because maester lewin looks at the designs and says wow this is really brilliant i i should have thought of this i it didn't even occur to me and Tyrion says you know don't beat yourself up over it. It's very similar to my saddle. I have the life experience, the lived experience for this. And so you can really see how Tyrion's own experience with being an outsider in a physical sense with his disability with being a dwarf contributes to this empathy that he is expressing towards Bran in a very concrete way. Like this is the the definition of what people are talking about when they call for representation, that this is how you are able to provide perspective that somebody who just does not have the same life as you might not be able to give. You know, I think as you're saying that, I think it makes a really good case for this idea of Tyrion being the foil to Ned Stark. Ned, who, and and I'm going to broad swipe here, maybe it's not the best of examples, but you have- I kind of love how much you hate Ned. I'm having fun with it. Ned Ned is just, honestly, and and this is what I'm going to say here. Ned's character continues to, like, like I continue to find him as pretentious, as somebody Mm -hmm. who has had a lot handed to him. Not that he hasn't worked plenty hard for where his position is, but he comes from good royalty. He comes from great blood. He is friends with... The king, the king. Uh, yeah. you know, uh, he has an incredibly strong family. He has all of his faculties. He's a good looking guy. And then you have on the other side of that, somebody in a similar political position, not identical, but similar on the level of politics, who has none of these things, who really is yeah. his own grotesque character and can't afford the luxury of uh, assuming kindness based on position. Right. Uh, and and it's it's I, and I, I love seeing it. I love seeing it. I love that. 
Um, we do get sort of an interesting moment here as the door open and Rickon comes in with three of the dire wolves and they mm-hmm. all surround Tyrion and are ready to eat him up. Yeah. Uh, until Bran, Bran steps in and says no. And, and uh, everybody kind of calls their, their dire wolves off. Yeah. I think there's uh, an interesting point here. We've discussed before, you know, Sansa kind of observed about how the dire wolves reflect their owners a little bit. And mm-hmm. so the three of them here, and then there's also a moment earlier when Bran's watching, uh, just a, a little bit of character touches. Grey Wind, Rob's wolf, obeys him instantly. No questions asked. Rob has trained his dire wolf to a T. Mm-hmm. Summer, Bran's takes a moment, kind of looks back and forth, and then says, okay, while well, Shaggy Dog continues to snarl at Tyrion before being like, yeah, I'm going to decide to leave on my own. Um, but the moment I wanted to bring up from earlier that I thought was very interesting following off of Bran's last chapter, he's watching and he thinks about Summer's personality and and describes him as having eyes of yellow gold that saw all there was to see. And then a couple paragraphs later, the smartest of the litter. So it's, I feel like that's almost a subtle reference to the, the magical properties of Bran's last chapter and mm. the sight that he was having of things generally. And funny that you say that because the next scene basically is, and, and we kind of, th- th- this scene in this this reception chamber ends rather coolly, although Tyrion, to his credit, plays it off as the good politician that he is. Uh, don't worry, I'll go stay at an inn. I'm not here to cause trouble. We'll both sleep better if yeah. I'm somewhere else. Uh, and then, uh, you know. And Rob the- does apologize also to, he does, to for his kinda, behavior. Yeah, that's- It's kind of begrudging, but I just wanted yeah. to mention it. Rob's quickly becoming another Ned to me. Yeah. Uh, but Starks. with that said, we have Bran kind of retires, uh, and he once again has a dream. Yeah, he uh, takes a nap. He takes a nap, and he has a bit of a different dream here, uh, where it's it's a little more, uh, I'd say, nightmare than the first dream. Yeah. There's some trauma shining through here. I wonder if he's experienced anything traumatic recently. <laughs> but I do think that the dream speaks nicely to this sort of... Uh, I don't know what the right term would be this duality or this 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 tension between what the last dream was this the the world of magic and fantasy that could potentially be coming his way to the reality he can't walk he can't fly there are yeah. no windows in this tower you know and and all of this so um so I just thought that was interesting. I didn't take much else from the dream. Yeah. I mean, just to give a brief description of what it is, uh, he he has a dream of climbing up an infinite tower. Uh, it goes on for forever. As he gets towards the top, he sees gargoyles that look like twisted and grotesque lions, which I don't think is the subtlest of metaphors here. The lions are talking and he can't really hear them. And then they start coming towards him and he says, I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear anything. I didn't hear anything until he wakes up. Gosh, I wonder what that could be referring to. Yeah, I think his subconscious is, this does not seem magical as much as it seems psychological to me. I'll add in the previous scene where he is there with Tyrion and in that reception room, uh, it's made clear to Tyrion that Bran has no memory of what happened before his fall. Right. Uh, which I just think is interesting too, as as I'm sure Tyrion's mind has been uh, having fun with the idea of what could have really happened here and, and well, who might have been involved. Right. Bran awakes from the dream. Uh, we get basically towards the end of the chapter here. He's called to dinner where he sits and we uh, have a dinner that includes the Rob and Bran, as well as the rest of the men from the Night's Watch who had come down with Tyrion. And we th- yep. they share the news about Uncle Benjen, basically saying he's probably dead. Yeah. Uh, to which Rob has a reaction that feels real stupid to me, which is, no, he's not. To which the men say, okay. Uh, yeah. well, but then, I mean, he gets emotional about it. And I actually think that's kind of, we're seeing his, his child side shine through. Rob mm. is still quite young. And so Bran woke up and saw Rob trying to be an adult. And as we're getting towards the end of this chapter, there are really some cracks mm. showing in that facade. That's, that, that's a really fair way to put it. I, I took it as a little more of that noble bravado. Probably he's not dead till I say he's yeah, but I yeah. but I, I didn't think about it from your perspective there, and, and I like that. And I'll add too that Bran quickly follows up on that by saying the children will help him, the children of the forest, yeah. who we had heard in that story earlier, which I think speaks even more so to Bran's youthfulness, mm-hmm. uh, as well as but potentially I love- foreshadowing. I mean, like like maybe right. I mean that's Yorin's response here, Maester Lewin, who is you know he's the science guy. 
says they're not around anymore. And Yoren says, I mean, who knows? There's crazy stuff north of the wall. Anything could be out there. Uh, it's hard to tell what's alive and what's dead, which mm-hmm. I think is an interesting phrasing after A the zombie phrase. references. Yeah. But with that said, I mean, that really is how the chapter ends. The final moment is that Rob carries Bran himself back up to Bran's room at the end of the night. And they really have like a really nice sort of cho- like like youthful and brotherly fraternal moment. Yeah, where they're a little vulnerable with each other. And I thought that was really sweet. Um, Agreed. Yeah, Rob, Rob kind of gets emotional about people having left. Uh, he says they're going to come back. Bran describes it as he said it with such hope in his voice that Bran knew he was hearing his brother and not just Rob the Lord. Uh, mm. And then he says, we're going to go visit John. We're going to have a great adventure. And then Rob kind of breaks down and starts to cry. And so, you know, this is what I was drawn from. You, We're really seeing the pressure that's mounting on him. He is now the adult in the room, despite not being an adult himself. Mm. Uh, and so we're not in his head, but we do see that he's starting to feel that. And I think, too, that it also kind of re- reflects and, and calls back to that that line from Bran just earlier in the chapter. Of, I wanted to go back to the way that it was. You know, I think that I can only imagine that the Starks, the Stark children were being raised with an understanding of what their future was about to be. And I'm going to make this up. But, you know, like, Rob, on your 18th year, you will come and step in and slowly start to take things over from me, Ned Stark. Except life has happened now. Things are not nothing will ever go the way that they were. These kids may have been told that it would. Yeah. And that's that's a rough thing to have to accept. Yeah, absolutely. But with that said, that runs us out of uh, the chapter with Bran, Bran 4, and takes us into the next chapter, Ed number, five. Ned something, Ned 5. Ned 5. I'm uh, here to help. Thank you. You're the best. Uh, the Ned chapter, I, I had fun with this chapter. I had fun mostly because of how quick it moved, not just moving it, it through the chapter. It does move quick, but, yeah. But, but there's plenty of little points that get We've hit. We've got intrigue. We've got the Ooh. mystery. And like you said, he's a detective. Exactly. Um. But it's it's fun to remember that Ned Stark is playing a dual role down in King's Landing. He is there as the hand of the king and trying to hold up his responsibilities to King Rob, Robert. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, he's also down there to be a detective. He's trying to find out what the heck just happened at Winterfell when the king's uh, retinue is there. You yeah. know, what happened to Bran? And what happened with John Aaron? John Aaron and what happened to who was there to try to murder Bran with the knife when who you know and so all of this so he's he's pulling that thread and that's kind of where we we start yeah uh, specifically about Lord Aaron he's speaking with a man named Grandmeister Pycel Pycel yeah and similar to old Nan we get a lot of description that this guy is really old that is very his only old. character feature uh yes a little forgetful um we find out that he's been in his position for generations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, like, uh, Varys, Lord yeah. Varys, I think is the name, but, you know, master of spiders, the spy, the spy master or whatever it is also there through generations of, uh, monarchs. Yeah. So uh, he actually did- goes back before the mad King to mm-hmm. his father, King Jaehaerys the second, who, uh, we're hearing about that dynasty, that part of the dynasty for the first time. So a really long time. Ned is there talking to him because this is the man who took care of John Aaron right at, right up until the end of john aaron's death he we get some some interesting and fun background kind of context it really does feel like a detective book mm-hmm. uh you know almost in the you know maybe detective books too far to say it it feels almost like an episode of law and order okay. uh where it's like but but you have this sort of like back out yeah but it was a lot of like you know hey grandmaster pycel where were you on the night of blah 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 oh well i was with john aaron and he asked for a book oh yeah did he seem sick to you no he was bright as the day is long except the next day he was retching um we do find out and and again maybe this is me overthinking like like the detective moment of this but there's all these little notes in here that that like sort of piqued my interest uh the man who was originally taking care of john aaron was prescribing like uh uh i don't know what they're called retching potions like like things to purge the inside basically right was called off by this man who was Mm -hmm. saying oh i thought that might be too much on the on john aaron's continence uh, even though we, the readers and Ned know that it was poison that was doing this to him, that maybe trying to get it out and purge it out would have been the best thing. Well, I mean, was this incompetence? Was this, uh, murder? Yeah. Like, like what was, it was Grandmaster Pycelle interfering here or was it an accident? 
Well, if I've learned anything from Law and Order, it's that the guy who seems innocent in the first scene is usually the guy you got to bring in in the sixth yep. scene. Uh, so I don't know, but I will say that he really does seem old. Maybe okay. he was just going about it the way that he wanted. Ned doesn't seem too threatened or afraid of this man at all. He's really just getting the info. Yeah. Uh, but we find out that John Aaron really seemed fine health right up until the moment that he got sick, at which point he got real sick real fast. Uh, nobody really understood what to do. Ned asked some specific questions, you know, or was there any concern of foul play here? Was there any concern mm-hmm. of poison? To which this guy says, you know, all us maesters really know the effects of poison. None of this seemed to be that. I don't know why right. you would think that. I like the uh, the line Maester Pycelle has, every case is different and every case is alike. Lord John's death was no stranger than any other. Uh, it's like, yeah, it was weird. It's always weird when somebody drops dead out of nowhere, but no more weird than it usually is. Well, that sounds like a great ambiguity to me. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> um, I will say, again, little fun things that get mentioned here. John, I'm sorry, John, Ned, Ned asks, you know, did, did Lord Aaron say anything to you in his final hours, mm-hmm. which uh, Pycel says, you know, in his last stage of the fever, he called out for Robert several uh-huh. times, but it was it Robert, his son, Robert, the king, Robert, what do you think? I have no freaking clue. To be honest, I keep getting confused by the fact that everybody has the same name as everybody else. It's like a Russian novel in here. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, okay. Could be anybody. Uh, he also said his last words were, the seed is strong. Did you have any thoughts on what that might mean? I thought it might have something to do with, like, inheritance of some kind. Like, who uh-huh. would deserve to get what? Uh, like, I, but, but no I don't, idea who he's talking about or I anything. don't. Again, my mind goes back to the TV show and little things I remember. I, I, I have some vague memory of there being potentially a contest. Like, like there... Like, like the idea of whoever. I think that's Mamma Mia. No, different type of contest, like a contested position. <laughs> ah, you okay. know, if so-and-so takes over such and such position, are they actually supposed to take over that position if they're not who they think they are sort of thing? Okay. It's really vague to me about that. But, yeah. but I will say very deliberately that all of these mentions of what was going on with John Aaron in his final hours felt to me like clues, but also felt to me like clues I wasn't understanding or grasping. Well, let me throw one more clue on the table for you here. You already brought it up. Uh, We hear that John Aaron had come the night before he got sick to Maester Pycelle and asked for a book, which is a ponderous tome on the lineages of the great houses. So that kind of dovetails nicely with your idea about the seed is strong as an inheritance or something along those lines. But And I'll say, who knows what my first thought was like, oh, well, maybe the king doesn't have a right to the throne. And then my next thought was the king took over the throne. This wasn't a lineage thing that got to King Robert take, you know, Baratheon taking over the throne. So I don't know. I I hear those those hints there. Yeah, I don't really know where to take them right now. Um, I'm hoping I didn't. I mean, like. Let's not forget, I for, I didn't realize that the dude had no ears in the prologue or that way more rice. <laughs> well, rice I'm there. calling everything out to you here. You've got the pieces. They're not fitting together quite yet. Mm-hmm. That's fine. We'll keep moving. We'll come back to it. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention in this scene, because you mentioned it a little bit, I really enjoy how unsubtle both Pycelle and Ned are. There's one specific exchange. Ned says, well, did you think maybe he was poisoned? And uh, Pycelle says, well, who would want to poison John Heron? And Ned says, well, I've heard it said that poison is something women use. Because we know he's accused Cersei in private before, and this is a pretty heavy-handed way to approach it. And Maester Pycelle doesn't miss a beat here. He goes, uh, yeah, women, cravens, and eunuchs. Hey, you ever think about Lord Varys? Uh, so I just really love how bad of a game they're playing here (laughs) yeah no i think that's that's super super fair and i think too and i think that it was i think it was even ned who brought this up in a much earlier chapter but i don't want to something along the lines of not wanting to go down to king's landing because it is all political games down there Mm -hmm. you know you can't throw toss a rock without hitting a spy and you know for somebody or other and it's it seems that you know is he dealing with somebody suspect or is he dealing with somebody who is just as paranoid and suspect as everybody else in King's Landing? Right. Uh, and I don't think it's easy, easy to tell. Um, yeah. But this closes out here. Uh, 
just to wrap it up, Ned leaves and thinks to himself, who is Pycelle working for? Mm. Did, did you have any thoughts on, on that question? I mean, we don't get a ton of indication here, but there's the hint that maybe he called off the doctor who was doing the right thing, possibly because he's old, possibly because he's not right. He's immediately trying to cast suspicion on Varus for some reason uh, in, in just the most obvious way available. One of the things that I remember from like, uh, I don't know, some like old political science class or something from college is just the question of like, you know, always be asking yourself who benefits from this, right? Mm -hmm. So for all of the rhetoric and all the whatever, whatever, but like, who's actually going to get some of the benefit? Kibono. Kibono. Uh, but I, I, qui. I yes. don't speak Latin, but it's a Q. Sure. Uh, <laughs> but I will say that with this character in particular, I have no idea how he would benefit. And so with that said, the only way I could assume he benefits, especially because it's not that he was brought in by Robert Baratheon into this position. He's been here for a long time. So I have to think that the only way he could benefit if he was is from money. And the only okay. people with money that I know of right now are Lannisters. The kingdom owes a ton of money to the Lannisters. And Littlefinger. And Littlefinger. Right. But uh, yeah, there's lots of debt that's going on. Although I do think the Lannisters are really stressed. It's like half of all the bills are owed to the Lannisters. Yep. And then and then more to others as well. But so just as another idea we have talked about before, both Varys, I mean, you've said this earlier, both Varys and Pycelle come from the Targaryen times. Uh, so maybe there's some knowledge there. Some Varys knows something about him from back in the day. Who knows? Maybe this is a rival that he's worried about in some way. Maybe, maybe, sure. Uh, just throwing out thoughts and I'll add to you because something that didn't cross my mind until now is like gosh maybe they're working for Targaryens but we know the Targaryens and there's no way in hell I could assume they work for the Targaryens like, like, yeah. okay. so I'm not, I'm not terribly concerned about that alright um, with that said uh, Ned leaves and just as a final thing says hey let me let me look at that book when you get a chance I'd love to see that yep. book that John Aaron was looking at uh, to which I thought was interesting was just the response saying oh I'll have to go see I'll have to find it uh, which I thought was weird. I would assume he would say, here it is, but right. that's fine. Okay. Another and then with, clue, maybe. Another clue. But with that said, uh, Ned leaves and comes right across Arya, who is basically balancing on one leg, like on a stairwell or something. Yeah, I like the note that she's like covered in bruises because she keeps falling down the stairs. <laughs> uh, but there's a quick, quick little moment here that he has with Air Arya. Uh, we're basically, it, it's a moment for her to say how much she loves the, uh, the dance of the water she's doing, the, yeah. uh, but how much she loves basically working the class. with Syria. Yeah. With Syria. Yeah. And she's just really having a great time with it. Uh, there's a little bit of a, I wouldn't say a back and forth, but, but as much as like, you know, she asks, you know, will I be a knight one day? And, and he says, no, you'll, you'll marry a, a king one day. And, and she says, that's Sansa. That's not me. Yeah. And I, just, I just like that little. Rebellion. So they have this conversation uh, just to close the loop from last chapter. This is they reminisce kind of uh, it's more of like a third third party narrator situation, but about learning that Bran has woken up. So that's what mm. I was talking about there. Oh, I see. And she says, oh, you know, what's going to happen with Bran now that he's paralyzed? And Ned says, mm -hmm. here are all the things she he could do. And Arya says, can I do those things? And Ned says, no, you're going to marry somebody and your sons will do those things. So it's kind of a little bit of a regression for him from where we had wrapped up uh, Arya's last chapter on, on the gender conversations we've right. been having. But you're that's right. Fair. It's a quick interaction. That's Very kind of quick. where we leave it. And then the next thing happens very quickly as well, where uh, basically one of Ned's servants comes in and says, Lord Baelish is here to see you. Like, uh, yeah. let's let's hang out with Littlefinger a little bit. Littlefinger, I mean, basically, again, it's a very, very quick exchange. Very quick exchange. But Littlefinger basically, it seems, has continued to work on behalf of the Starks. Mm -hmm. And he turns around and says, wouldn't it be nice if you could talk to somebody who was part of Lord Aaron's posse, basically? Right. Uh, because it seems that Lysa, John Aaron's wife, uh, took took basically everybody away when she left. Yeah, she she brought them back to the Erie with her. Turns out there's one squire who stayed behind, uh, if not one other person as well. And uh, and Ned says, "Great, let's get him in here." To which Lord Baelish takes one extra step and says, "Hey, come look at this. You see that man over there across the courtyard. You see that man over there. These are spies. These are people yeah. that have been sent here to watch who comes in and out of your door." you need to be much more cautious 
about what you're about to do. You are being watched. Yeah. And I think this is an interesting callback. We had this conversation about, you know, who reported on Catelyn being in the city. Mm -hmm. And uh, she had the thought kind of in the naive way that Ned's going about it, that it was the the ship captain, which it very well might have been. But there really is this vibe to this scene that everyone here is watching. Everyone is reporting on you to somebody and uh, and that you should just assume that anywhere you go, it's going to get around. Right, right. And I think that that also takes a, I'm going to call it a cheap shot, but I think a very valuable shot at that sort of noble thinking method, like mindset that Ned has. Just because he is of high rank doesn't mean he gets any privacy, doesn't mean right. that he's getting any like privileges here. If, and also if anything, on the flip the side, like he learns this and has this conversation with Baelish and he's been suspicious about this aspect of things before. And at no point do we see him trying to set up his own information network. Right. Right. That's a really fair thing to say. Uh, yeah, he really does seem like he's like the the odd man out here. He's the country bumpkin in in a city in a city town. And uh, I think it's showing. Yeah. So, yeah. So he, he Ned says, I'll bring Sir Hugh of the Vale, the squire in for questioning. Uh, I also just want to mention the king knighted this guy after John Aaron died, uh, mm-hmm. which kind of stuck out to me. This was a squire before. And now he's a knight. Uh and Baelish says, yeah, like you said, there's spies everywhere. Don't bring him to, to speak to you. Send somebody to talk to him. I'll add that the final lines of this chapter is Ned calling after Lord Baelish and saying, basically, I'm grateful for you. I was I was wrong to distrust you. To which Littlefinger turns around and says, distrusting me, it was the wisest thing you've done since you climbed down off your horse. Mm-hmm. Which I just thought was a weird comment. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of open for him. Like he's this this slimy, sneaky guy. And here, either he's making fun of Ned or he's just outright saying it, which does not seem in character for him. I will add one more similar note there. Baelish, when he says, send somebody to talk to Sir Hugh for you, he says, is there a man in your service that you trust utterly completely? And Ned says, yes. And he says, then I have a bridge to sell you, (laughs) which I think is a funny moment. Uh, So Baelish is really like... Every interaction we see between the two of them is is Baelish really poking fun at Ned uh, and and really mocking him for being an idiot. But it seems like he is trying to teach him something here in that sense that you're talking about. You are being too above board about this. You are not playing the game the right way. Please listen to me. Please try and adjust how you're going about things. Yeah, that's a really fair way to say it. I like that. But that takes us out of Ned 5 and into John number 4. (laughs) 4. And I'll I'll point out by the way we're, we've been spending a good amount of time with John whether it's yeah. through Tyrion's eyes and Tyrion's chapters or just John's chapters uh, but he's been a lot of fun and we find him obviously we're back up in, at the Night's Watch we're back up at the Wall uh, and we find that John has well I guess it doesn't happen to happen necessarily in this order we find very quickly that John has taken a real leadership role amongst his uh, peers. He is training them. He's working with them. He really has taken a step up since the last chapter where he said he was going to do this. Uh, And it shows. In addition, we're introduced to a very new character. Well, at the start, he's he's working. Yeah, he's working with with the recruits and trying to teach some of his classmates things. And the instruction he gives to start is get all your weight behind the blade. That's what we open on. And then we immediately get introduced to the fattest person John has ever seen. Fattest so, boy he had ever seen. <laughs> get uh, all your but, weight behind the blade. That should work well for this guy. But we get into this very interesting sort of uh, like, like this chapter really is about this relationship between John and who we find out is a, is a young boy Sam. named Sam. Samwell Tarly. Samwell Tarly or Sir Piggy. Um, but basically you, you have... Just to run through things quickly, John is in the courtyard. He is practicing with his other fellow Night's Watchmen. We have mm-hmm. this new character that shows up who is clearly out of place here. He seems to come from nobility based on his clothes. He's definitely well-fed. He's a very large man. <laughs> yeah. uh, but more than that, he is a. Uh, he seems to be quite the coward. He can't, you know, Sir Alistair uh, tosses him into the ring very quickly, at which point he is beaten quite quickly. Yeah. And is basically like the others are encouraged to basically beat him until he stands up. And right. Jon Snow really steps up as a man of honor and says, no, I, I, this is ridiculous. And and gets to have these these others, his peers kind of rally around that and, and sort yeah. of face against Sir Alistair in, in a very small way. There. 
Yeah, yeah. So Sir Alistair says, okay, John, you want to defend him. You'll fight off three people to, and anybody who gets to him can do whatever they want to the fat kid. And uh, two of the other trainees, Gren and Pip, kind of step up alongside John mm-hmm. and say, we're going to join you on this. And the three on three goes much better. Uh, but Sir Thorne is not super pumped about everybody disobeying him. Which I think is fair to be pissed, but I think it also speaks... Like, like I can't stress enough how much this makes me impressed with John. Yeah. You know, Sir Alistair is somebody who's, it's his job to get people to listen to him. And here you have somebody who's found a way to get them to listen to somebody else. And, uh, and I think that's impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And then, and then this chapter really does become this relationship between John and Sam and sort of that, what grows there. We find a few things out about Sam that, that I thought were interesting. Uh, Number one, he, he calls himself a coward. And we even find out some colorful context about where he comes from a little bit later and that he was, you know, sort of the only son and heir to some type of Lord who was so excited to have a Lord, son. Lord Randall Tarley. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So excited to have a son who could take over an heir. Uh, but we, he found out very quickly that Sam is not going to be that type of son. Sam right. likes dancing. Sam likes colorful things. Sam likes Sam to likes eat. Eating. Yeah. Uh, you hear that a lot. Yeah, and it's that, also really emphasized here. The Tarleys are an old house. They have a mm, Valyrian sword, which we know mm, is a status symbol. They are right up, lined up against uh, the Tyrells, who are at the at the top of the hierarchy. We know that they're the Lord's paramount, kind of the equivalent of the Starks in the area called the Reach out of Highgarden. So this is like a very significant group that Sam is serves to be heir of the, mm, the heir of the house too. I also liked very quickly in this chapter, there's this comment that Sam is making about himself. I'm a coward. And the reaction John has is who in the world would call themselves a coward? Yeah. Nobody should do that. But only a few pages later, John actually says something that I thought was really, really fun to hear him say, which was the world was full of cravens who pretended to be heroes. It took yeah. a queer sort of courage to admit to cow- to admit to cowardice as Samuel Tarley had, which I think yeah. speaks to John's ability to mature in situations unlike ned uh (laughs) but he's 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 understanding that life is more complicated and colorful than than it may have once been described to him yeah i mean i think he does get some of this from ned just in terms of greeting people where they're at and where they are Mm. but he also links it directly to his relationship with Tyrion, which i think is really nice Mm. because it's a callback you know this is another one of the cripples bastards and broken things this sam is a kid who has gone through a lot and has struggled with things and clearly does not fit in in the society in the way that Arya doesn't in the way that john doesn't in the way that Tyrion doesn't you know, he is his his big failure in life. The reason why he's here, his crime that got him sent to the wall is his inability to perform masculinity in the way that his warrior father wanted him to, uh, as we learn in a moment. So, you know, it's interesting that that John immediately sorts him into that category and says, how would Tyrion have treated this guy? Hmm. I like that. I will say, and I, I mean, I'm just going to kind of breeze through this, right? But like, this yeah. is what the majority of this chapter is. It's their relationship. We learn about Sam Tarley and where he comes from. Like we talked about, we see John really standing up for him. And in fact, in a, in a strange moment and an aside, uh, there's a conversation between Sam and John where Sam asks, uh, basically is asking about his dreams. Mm-hmm. And John John tells this sort of interesting dream that he has, which I just thought was a nice parallel to the Bran chapter and the dreams okay. that Bran has been having. Uh, well the dream wasn't i don't think was that interesting uh okay. it's basically john in a castle in the castle he's back in winterfell i think mm-hmm. uh but at a castle and the castle is always empty everything is empty basically things are gone no one is around it's filled with bones uh and then he finds himself in front of the crypts it is at winterfell and uh-huh. he doesn't want to go there he wants to say i'm not one of you <laughs> like I, I don't belong here and, and i don't want to go down there yet he's still pulled into the crypt into where all of these ancient starks are buried uh and that's i think where the where the where the door where the dream ends yeah so i mean do you have any thoughts on that we have the emptiness of winterfell and, and the you know it's not an emptiness in a still sense it's very much so an emptiness associated with death and loss and then we have this moment where he says i'm not one of you i'm not a stark and then gets pulled into the crypts anyway any any thoughts on those two themes there or are we just well, gonna let them sit i think it goes back to something we talked about before about like who's starting to stand out a little bit as a hero character in these books uh and i think this again not that being called to the crypts is so heroic but it is having a dream of 
lineage and heritage and you know having to deal with the ghosts of those that came before you even though he's a bastard uh is a really heroic trope i think uh-huh. um again i'm i'm still does it raise like any he, questions for you on on who he is or who he thinks he is well no because i mean like even though he's considered the bastard son he is still ned stark's stu- son mm-hmm. you know like 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 and we hear a lot about how you know he has the stark look he is the one that has the coloring he has the face he has the kind of attitude of it in a way that maybe mm-hmm. rob doesn't always or bran doesn't always yeah but but i'll say it's hard for me to have and i think i was saying this a little earlier it's hard for me to have like a sense of the meaning and the depth of something like of a scene like this of a dream like this without a sense of where the threats coming from Mm-hmm. Right now, there's a lot of ambiguous threats. Could the Lannisters be a threat? Maybe. Could uh, Littlefinger be a threat? Maybe. Could the others outside the wall Old be a man. threat? Yeah, like like at this point, like there's sort of a, a like a a, a a subtle doom, uh, mm-hmm. a sense of doom that's leering around all of our characters and their situations, but no real sense of what exactly is about to be dooming. And without that, right. it's hard for me to say like, oh, and then obviously John will become the hero to save Ned from the, the Lannisters down in King's Landing or anything okay. like that. So the sense is there, uh, but but I didn't have much else to read too deep into that. All right, that's fair. With that said, the chapter ends, you know, they talk about this, but the chapter ends in a similar way that it's been going uh, John continues to show leadership qualities. He basically turns. Well, we gotta, you, you skipped past something. I mean, we referenced oh, sure. it earlier here. John shares his dream. And then mm-hmm. he asks Sam, do you ever dream of Horn Hill where you're from? And this is where we get the concrete story of why Sam is here. Uh, and like I said, we referenced it. He he was a disappointment to his father who really wanted, you know, the, the martial masculine knight of a son. And it wasn't him. And we get this whole story of his childhood, of his father really repeatedly trying to force him into that role and him failing to fulfill it over and over and over again, which gives us such a clear sense of why he's so nervous, why he's so afraid and and has this reaction to it. But eventually one day his mother has a son, he has a younger brother, and his father focuses entirely on that kid. And the kid grows up and clearly is exactly what Lord Tarly wants out of this. Mm -hmm. And one day Randall pulls Sam aside and says, hey, we need to talk. You're not going to be the heir. I'm not letting you inherit this title. I'm not letting you be the next Lord Tarly. You're not going to get the sword. Tomorrow morning, you're going to get up and say, I want to go join the Night's Watch. I forfeit all of my rights, or else we're going to go out for a hunt. I'm going to kill you, and then I'm going to tell your mother that it was an accident. And so that's how he ended up here, Uh, which is really, I mean, it's such a devastating thing to hear about a child. Yeah, or a teenager in this case, but yeah, you seem I get unsympathetic. It, well, I am unsympathetic. You know what? I think that this seems to be a world built in this sort of direction. I think that even like Tyrion has said, like if he wasn't a Lannister, like Lord knows what would have happened to him, sort of thing. Right. Uh, this seems to be a world of inheritance and passing and lineage and things like that. And yeah, no, that's fair. And you know, who's who's to say what would have happened if Tyrion had been born the heir instead of Jaime? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, he's he's not the eldest son, so maybe that saved him some space. And if Sam had been born second, his dad maybe just would have ignored him instead of threatening to murder him. But, you know, I, I really do. We've had an entire chapter worth of this kid is really fat and he's really afraid of everything. And this story crystallizes why. I mean, this is somebody who is dealing with serious, serious childhood issues. I mean, think about what those therapy sessions would look like. Mm. Uh, so, of course, he's reacting this way. That's very fair. But with that said, I didn't find it that impactful <laughs> that it was okay. like, oh, it's a reason for Sam Tarly to be at Night's Watch. And it's a reason I can only imagine that Sam and John are about to become very, very good friends. Uh, it 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 speaks to John's honor. It speaks to John as a leader. And in fact, this is how the chapter ends, where John basically stands up and says to the rest of his his classmates and his peers, basically, you we cannot and you cannot make fun of sam and we need everybody to be on board here and everybody does to john's sort of surprise everybody really does come on board except for one person where later that rest but later that night the rest of them kind of pin rast down and threaten him very physically and say you need to with ghost yeah (laughs) 
you ghost need to jumps up his... on him. They pin him down and ghost ghost kind of nibbles at him a little bit as a ghost does. But, uh, but, but the, the, the agreement that they all make together in some be from, from some physical convincing is we're just not going like, this is not someone who is going to be able to beat us or fight us. Uh, we know we'll be pitted against him by Sir Alistair and all of this, but we're going to take it really easy on him. We really want to make sure that he's going to be part of our brotherhood right. uh, and not somebody who's sort of like murdered here uh, for some sort of noble dignity that's that's ancient and antiquated. Yeah, uh, which and is that's, just a great moment for John. Yeah, and I'll say that, uh, you know, and, and that's really how the chapter ends. I mean, Sam kind of comes to John and says, I know, I know you did something and I can't tell you how yeah. much I love you for it. And I'm glad to be friends with you. And John says, we're not friends. We're brothers. We're brothers. We are brothers, Dan. And it's the same idea. Yeah, I think there's, John has this little thought process, just a brief call back to Benjamin's comment that, you know, I love Ned, but he's not my brother anymore. These are my brothers. And mm-hmm. John, after last chapter, we his, his last point of view, we saw him really struggling to fit in here. Everybody hated him. He was kind of this pompous, stuck-up kid. And he got taken to task first by Donald Noy and then by Tyrion and clearly internalized those lessons and is coming to the other side of realizing, okay, this is what it means to build a fraternal order, to build camaraderie, to build these relationships. Yeah. it's uh, These were three very focused and quick chapters, but I, I thought they were really fun and a lot of fun to spend time with these people. Dan, where are we going next? Yeah, so uh, next we're just going to do two chapters. Uh, we're going back to King's Landing to continue with the mystery. So it's Ned 6 and Catelyn 4 are our next two chapters. Amazing. Well, I'm looking forward to it, man. All right. I'll talk to you then. You take care. That's all for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing two chapters, A Game of Thrones, Ned 6 and Cat 4. If you enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast, sharing it with friends, and following us on Twitter at Bros with Banners. We're always open to hearing your feedback, and please feel free to share it, retweet anything you can do to help spread the word. Helps a lot. Thanks, as always, for listening.